Get there. Um, thanks for letting us come into your church. Thank you for housing us. Thank you for feeding us. Uh, we had a great time, and we hope you enjoyed. We, first of all, we came. We set up for the help set up for the Valentine's Day banquet, and then provided entertainment or something like it for the Valentine's Day banquet. So we hope you uh, we hope you enjoyed that. So I asked if I could uh, if I could get up there and preach, but they said no. So I didn't know. I don't know what's back there, but I hope there's a staircase leading up to the top that you stand on sometimes. Um, so anyway, something about me that's, uh, this is, by the way, this is a lesson that's very uh, near to my heart, very special to me. Um, something very important about me, interesting about me, but important about the Bible is that uh, the, the Jewish context of the Bible, if you've never heard of that, so something I started studying a few years ago that interested me a lot was that um, the, the Jewish context of the Bible, that Jesus was Jewish, he was, and uh, you know, all his disciples were Jewish, and everyone that wrote the Bible was Jewish, except for Luke. So it's like, it's, there's a lot behind that, and he was, he was from Israel, he's an Israelite, and all of his disciples were, were from Israel, and like, they lived in the Middle East. And so a few years ago, I kind of, you know, took a step back, I'm like, you see all these paintings that is a picture of Jesus, and he's, you know, very fair-skinned and long-flowing brown hair, you know, he's very small and weak. Uh, but that's not at all what, you know, Jesus would have been like. He was a Middle Eastern Jew, a Near Eastern Jew, he was dark skin, rough skin, you know, short brown hair, probably a big beard, um, probably not very tall, cool guy, very, you know, he's probably more outdoorsy than, you know, fair-skinned, you know, guy, you know, but I started studying this, and it impacts a lot in the Bible, you start realizing that when you start learning that his, his Jewish mindset, you start learning that it impacts everything in the Bible, it doesn't ever take away from anything, but it adds to it. It always adds to it. A lot of stories like that. And that's what we'll get into in a little bit. But I want to go back a long time and, uh, to the, <laughs> the Garden of Eden. First, I wanted to, to show you that the Bible is one unified story from beginning to end. So if you're one of those people that's like, oh, the Old Testament, you know, that doesn't matter. It does matter. Like, it mattered to Jesus. He had it memorized. Seriously, from beginning to end, the Jews, first century Jews would memorize the entire thing. So it mattered a lot to him. All the stories, and they're about him, is the interesting thing. All the stories are about him. He's in them, not physically, but they're about, you'll, you'll see. So, but the Bible's one story from Genesis to Revelation. And, and Genesis is a story about man walking with God in the, God in the garden. And uh, Satan comes as a serpent and tempts them. And, and they eat the fruit of the forbidden tree. And they've fallen from God. But what, what Jesus does is, is uh, he steps back from that. He looks at Eve, and he tells her, and the serpent's there, and he tells her, he's like, like you're going to have an offspring to Eve, one singular offspring is what the word means. And then he looks to the serpent, and he says, uh, he's gonna, you're, you're going to bite his heel, the, the offspring of Eve, and he's going to strike your head, showing like a, a mutual exchange of blows. He says, you're going to kill him, and he's going to kill you. Right after they sin, so they're separated from God at that point, and then he immediately comes to them and tells them that Eve is going to have an offspring one day, and he's going to crush the serpent, but the serpent will also crush him. And we know that that's the story of Jesus right there, and that's known to the Jews as the first messianic prophecy in Genesis 3. Um, <clears throat> moving forward, and that, that was God's promise that he was going to do that, and, and moving forward to the story of David and Goliath, and it's a great story, it is, um, but it's a story of, you know, a, a young shepherd boy defeating a giant, well, God defeated the giant through the young shepherd boy, but there's something a lot deeper there, because it says that Goliath was 
like six cubits tall, his spearhead weighed six talents, his shield was like six shekels or something. Um, and, and which, yeah, and so it's, it's what, you want you to, what you want you to see is six, 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 but we always, you know, convert that into standard measurement or whatever. We're like, oh, he's nine feet tall. Like, that's cool. He's big. Yeah, but that's not the point. The point is he wants you to see six cubits and six shekels and six talents, and he wants you to see that the writer also writes his armor was like the scales of a snake. He wants you to see that, you know, this is the serpent from the garden. He wants you to see that Goliath, you know, in this story represents Satan and David represents, represents Jesus. He wants you to see that he defeats Goliath, and then what does he do? He cuts off the head of the snake. And it's, so, it's God showing the Israelites that, yes, I know Goliath is big, but I'm still keeping my promise to send um, the Messiah to save you. And then moving forward, we see later in Revelation 12 that that serpent from Genesis has now been revealed to John, who wrote Revelation, that it's now a dragon. He's grown to a dragon. And then God promises that he will throw that dragon into the lake of fire to be tormented day and night. And so it's God putting the, the capstone, the endstone on his book, Genesis to Revelation. It's, the, it's, it's the, the serpent causing man to sin. And then God sending Jesus to crush the serpent. And it's one story from beginning to end. This is the Bible that we know. But there's, there's something very special in the Bible, uh, covenants, that we don't... We think we, we know some about, but we don't ever really study because they're not that exciting to study. Um, I study them because they weren't that exciting, but there's a lot of exciting stuff there. So you have to get past the boring stuff. But uh, there's, there's four big covenants in the Bible. The Noahic covenant with Noah. There's the uh, Abrahamic covenant with Abraham. The covenant with God in Israel. And then God's covenant with David. We're going to talk about the Abraham one today. But I just want to go through those three real quick that aren't the Abraham ones. So there's God's covenant with um, Israel, which is there, there's two halves. Each side has a, a half that they're supposed to uphold. And we'll talk about why it's, you know, what that entails. But just for a summary, each side has a half that they're supposed to uphold. Israel's half was to obey all 613 commandments that God gave them without flaw, and we know that they failed that all the time. But that's the thing about covenants is when one half doesn't keep their half, the other half doesn't just stop keeping their half. It's not a contract that the contract's been breached or broken. No, it's a covenant where if one half keeps their half, the other half keeps their half no matter what, even if either side fails. So we know Israel failed to do that all the time. And the interesting thing is that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of these four covenants. So what was, how did Jesus fulfill Israel's half of the covenant? He was the faithful Israelite who never sinned, who kept all 613 commandments without flaw. So he kept their half. And then there's the Davidic covenant, which is that God would, uh, he would bless King David and he would send an offspring through David to bring uh, peace and blessings um, to, to all of the world, to all nations, Jew and Gentile. That was God's promise through David. His covenant with David, we know, that, we know that Jesus is that fulfillment, that Jesus brought the gospel of himself to Jew and Gentile. And he was from, if you look to Matthew 1, 1 to 118, he is from the line of David. So he is the son of David. And then there's the Noahic covenant, which is one of my favorite besides the Abraham one we'll talk about today. It's the story about I mean, you know the story of Noah, Noah's Ark. It's in, you know, kids' classrooms for some reason. It's like animals on the ark. Yeah, it's fun, but also, you know, the entire earth died. Uh, so that's always been interesting to me that, you know, if we put that in. It was in my nursery when I was young. 
<laughs> then you grow up to realize what the real story is. But it's God's covenant with Noah. The interesting, interesting thing about God's covenant with Noah is that it's a one-sided covenant. Noah doesn't have a part. He builds the ark, and then he, he just gets on it, and that's it. He doesn't have something he has to keep after that. But uh, G- God knows humans will continue to be evil, but promises not to destroy them with water. That's his half of the covenant, that he will not destroy the earth with water again. But there's something much deeper there because we know he puts a rainbow in the sky. What we see after it rains, it's God's, uh, the sign of his covenant. But the interesting thing about the rainbow is, it, it's, it's the Hebrew word is keshet, which means war bow. It's not rainbow, it's war bow, like a bow and arrow. So what does God do? He shows Noah, he destroys the earth and gets rid of sin and leaves Noah and his family. And then he puts a, a bow in the sky pointing at himself, telling him, hey, next time the world gets this bad, not, a, not only am I not going to destroy you with water, he's saying, I will be the one that pays for it. He points a bow at himself, saying, okay, next time I will die and pay for the sins of all the people. And then there's God's covenant with Abraham, which is what we are talking about today. This is bugging me. Move it down a bit. Keep hearing myself breathe. It's driving me crazy. All right. Well, that's not good. Sorry. That looks weird, but we'll roll with it. All right, so God's covenant with Abraham. To me, this is the second most important part of the Bible because this is where the Bible is tied together other than Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Yes, that is first. But this one is very important, but we often read over it and are just like, what was that talking about? And keep reading, which is fun. So we'll be in Genesis 15 if you want to turn there. We'll also be in 17 just for a brief moment. But I would turn to 15 if you're going to uh, choose between the two. All right. So, I'm going to read real quick and summarize what happens. And I hope I read through it and you're just like, that's definitely weird. That's one of the things I always read over. So, it's, it's kind of long, so I'll just kind of to paraphrase it. But, you know, to set the scene, God comes to Abraham and he tells him, Abram, excuse me. I'll use Abram and Abraham interchangeably and I'll explain why in a second, why that changes. But he tells Abram, he's telling him, like, I will bless you. And Abram's worried because he's like, God, I don't have an offspring, but you promised to bless me and make me, you know, very fruitful, and, but I don't have any offspring. He says, I have Eliezer of Damascus, which is probably a servant they picked up from, you know, a town, a, a, a city that they conquered. He's worried because this isn't a, a Jewish guy. He wants an actual, you know, biological son to, to pass his, his lineage down to. And God, he's worried because God hasn't provided him a son, and he's super old now. So he, he's worried, and this is where this starts. And then God tells him, it's like, it's like you know, don't worry, I'm going to make you, you see the stars in the sky, and I'm going to make you as, as fruitful as that. That's how many offspring you'll have. If you can count the stars in the sky, that's how many offspring you'll have. <laughs> Abraham, he's pretty old, though. He's like 100 years old. And then when he promises him this, God comes to him and he says uh, in verse 9, he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a pigeon. So Abraham brought, Abraham brought him all of these, cut them in half, laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds, came, when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And then he sits out there for a while and he, he drives these buzzards, I guess, away. And then after that, he goes into a deep sleep and then wakes up at night. Um, and then before, 
he, and then later in verse 17, it says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, and to the river of Egypt, to the great river, the river Euphrates. So he makes a covenant with Abraham, and a bunch of weird stuff happens. He tells him to get like a heifer and a female goat and a turtle dove. And you notice that Abram's not like, uh, okay, like I'll get those animals. That's kind of weird. No, he knows, he knows exactly what's going on. But the thing is, there's not a whole lot of talk about covenants in our Bible because they just knew it. They were Jews. They understood what a covenant was. Uh, they don't have to explain that to him. So we've kind of lost that familiarity because we're in the Western world now. We're not Near Eastern, Middle Eastern people, so we don't understand how that stuff works, but he clearly does. So that's what I kind of wanted to go through is talking about what happens in a covenant, and then I'll explain um, what... God's covenant with Abram entails. So, this is kind of information. This is like drinking from a fire hydrant here for a second. So there's a lot of just like information that you might retain. Some of it might not. So, you know, write really quick if you're taking notes or something. But, interesting about covenants, and the biggest thing I want you to, to, to remember is that it's not a contract. It's not like a contract. It's a covenant. Um, it, it's saying that if you, we, we have my half, and you have your half, and if I fail to keep my half, that doesn't give you permission to not keep your half. You still keep your half no matter what. It's not a contract that can be breached. So there's, there's a few different things that go on in a, a Near Eastern covenant. So there's an, an exchange of a robe or a coat, whatever they wore. They would exchange these, and that represented that um, you're willing to lay your life down for the other person in the covenant. Often there would be a marriage-style covenant. A man, both, both dads of, you know, whoever's getting married party would, would do this. They would exchange their robes, and they would go through all of these steps. So they exchange their robes and saying that they're willing to uh, protect, their, protect the other person, and they'll lay down their life for them. Uh, we know that God tells Abram he'll deliver them from slavery. He won't let them uh, die. He'll, he'll do whatever it takes to get Abram out of slavery. And we know that later on when they're enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, God does. He brings them out from the Egyptians. The next is they would exchange um, a belt, or which ha- your belt, which has your sword or your knife or some weapon in it. That's exchanging enemies with each other. That's showing that like your enemies are now my enemies, and my enemies are now your enemies. And we, we know this because after this chapter, it says when Abram would walk by um, the Babylonians or the Malachites, they were terrified. He didn't go to them. He just walked by, and they knew that Abram was in a covenant. That nation of Israel was in a covenant with God, so they were terrified because they've heard the stories of what uh, their God, the God of the Jews, did. So they were terrified because they know that that is now their enemy. Next, they would exchange names, and this is where the Abram to Abraham comes from. They would exchange names with each other, showing that they're part of the same family almost now. They wanted this to be a very close relationship. So Abram Come and then we get Abraham, but where does the A-H come from? It comes from Yahweh, which is God's name. So he takes the A-H from God's name, puts it on his own name, so now he's Abraham, and then Sarai, his wife, is now Sarah, S-A-R-A-H. She also takes the A-H. And then God becomes the God of Abraham, and then later the God of the Israelites, the God of David, and then um, now he's our God. So they exchange names. Next they make a, a scar or an identifying mark of some sort. I've heard, I've, I've read that they would, they would like burn themselves or cut themselves open 
And then while it's healing, they would take ashes from a fire and then put it in their scar on their, on their arm and then let it heal like that. So when it heals, you can see the black ash under their skin. So when you were walking through the streets or when someone saw you, they, could, they knew that you were in a covenant with someone. They wanted the covenant to be visible to everyone. They wanted everyone to know, hey, that guy is in a covenant with someone because we can see the mark. Um, this is where it gets weird. But later on in, in chapter 17, we know that God gave Abram the a covenant of circumcision. That was their identifying mark. Every Jewish boy that was born on, and on, then on the eighth day, they would be circumcised. That was their identifying mark. And then keep going is they would have the terms of the covenant and then they would also have a summary document. Um, yeah, really interesting, I know. So they have the terms of the covenant, which are usually super long. They're, they're really long and drawn out, which we know as what, whenever you, see, whenever you see the law in the New Testament, when he says the law, they're talking about the law of Moses. It's, it's Genesis through Deuteronomy. That's their law. That's all their, uh, their commands that they were meant to keep, all 613 commands, which is very extensive. So then they had a summary document. And what was a summary document? It was the Ten Commandments. That was their summary document they, they kept with them. And these laws were, the long list was meant to be reviewed regularly. So, and then Moses uh, later on issued a decree that, that everyone should review the commands. Every two years they should go through all of them. And then they kept the Ten Commandments with them all the time. <clears throat> so, and, and something interesting is that what you do with the summary document is you keep it in a place interesting to you. Or not interesting, a place special to you. So Abram keeps his in the Ark of the Covenant because to them, and Moses, and, that, and to them, that is where God lived. They, they, didn't, they weren't like, yeah, God lives there, kind of like, you know, he lives in us. No, they like thought and believed that God lived in this golden box that they kept with them, um, which is a sign of humility from God, I might add. They thought he lived in there, so they kept theirs in the Ark of the Covenant because that's where God was. And then what did God do when, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, the thing is he didn't have, you know, one through five on one tablet and then six through ten on the other. He had one through ten on both because one half is God's and then one copy is uh, Moses' copy. So then what did Moses put his in the Ark of the Covenant? And then God tells Moses to also put his in the Ark of the Covenant. Why is that? Because the place that's special to God is when he is around his people, when he's with his people. He puts his, his law in the Ark of the Covenant because that's where he gets to live and interact with his people. And then later they put that Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, where it's the most deeply intimate place that you know, the high priest can experience and be with God. So that's this, a beautiful picture, and you know Moses probably came down from the mountain you know, weeping because God just told him, like, my sacred and my special place is where your sacred and special place is. It's the same place. Um, lastly is the memorial meal. This is the last, you know, list. But it's a memorial meal they would have. They would, they would sit and they would have a meal together. In those, you know, back then they didn't have a meal with someone that they were active enemies with. They would only have a meal when, uh, when, with someone who they were at peace with. So they would have a meal. And then in Genesis 18, uh, Abram's just been circumcised, he took on that, you know, identifying mark, and he's sitting there in the heat of the day healing, and, you know, these three strangers walk up, and he gets up and runs to them, um, probably in pain, and then bows at the middle one's feet and says, uh, my Lord, my God, don't pass your servant by, um, and whoever you, there's a lot of, you know, theology there, and I'm not going to get into that, but whoever you think that middle person is, it's either God or someone on God's behalf to come, and, and then they later, he slaughters a calf, and they have a meal together. And that is their memorial meal. So the reason those are, you know, I said Moses sometimes and Abram sometimes. I should have made that more clear. Is that these don't all happen at once. It's not like 
you know, covenant, and we got to do all these things like in order. It happens over the course of years, maybe a hundred years. In this case, a lot of years, because um, eventually it got passed on for so long that Moses was doing the summary document and the, you know, the long document, the Torah. That, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, their law. So it doesn't all happen at, at once. It can take a long time, and you don't even have to know the, the you know, the, the law, what, what is happening. You don't have to know both sides of the covenant before you take your half of the covenant. So I know that's a lot of information, so that's no more, you know, just throwing information at you. I know that's boring. But that's all the things that entail a covenant. It's a lot of stuff. It's, you know, law, and then there's, you know, putting it in a special place, and then there's a meal, and then there's identifying mark, and it's a process. It is. But then we go back and we look at Abram, and we, we don't really understand what's going on. At least I didn't when I was first studying it. He gets, you know, these animals, and he, what it says is he, he cuts them in half, and he puts each half on each side of, like, this pathway. And then what happens is he lets the blood, you let the blood spill in the middle, so there's a, a pathway of blood right down the middle. And he doesn't cut the birds, though. And I really thought there was, like, something deep and, like, theological there, and there's not. It's just they're too small to cut, so they didn't, you know. Save yourself some time and don't study that because they're just too small, you know. I was really disappointed. But he didn't cut these, and they just let the, but, but he let the blood spill in the middle of this pathway. And what you do is, and that's called the cutting of the covenant, and what you do is, you know that this resembles, before you, you walk through it is what you do, but you know in your head that this is what, it, it's a picture. It says, this is what happens if I don't keep my half of the covenant. That's what that represents. It says, may I be like one of these dead animals if I don't keep my half of the covenant. Even if they break their half, I still have to keep my half, or may I be like one of these dead animals. And, and that in this time, in, in Abram's time, if you did not keep your half legally, the other person could kill you, and they, it would be okay because you didn't keep your half of the covenant. I know that's dark, but, you know, times have changed. So, the, the cutting of the covenants happened, and that's where Genesis 15 comes in, is it's, you know, he, he puts these animals, and the blood is spilt. But what, what is Abraham thinking at this point? So if you go to Genesis 17, that's, the, that's kind of the explanation of what's happening in 15. That's um, what God is, is saying, you know, what the covenant is, what that entails. And it's God saying, uh, I, am the, I am the God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. So that's both has. That's God's promise to make Abraham a father of a multitude of nations. And then it's the other half. What is Abram's half and the Israelites' half? It's to be blameless before God, to be perfect, to never sin. That's both halves. So that's why Abram falls on his face is because he's like, and he's, he's saying, I can't keep my half. But the, the thing about covenants is that there's always a higher power and a lower power. And the higher power gets to determine the covenant, and the lower power can't be like, no, you know, you can't respectfully decline a covenant. You just go through with it. You don't have a choice when there's a great high power and then a lowly person that is Abram. There's no, there's no negotiation. It's, hey, here's the covenant. Let's do this. Um, and Abram falls on his face out of fear because he knows he can't walk blameless before God for the rest of his life. He's a sinful man born into sin. He can't do it. So then, that's, that's what's happening in, in chapter 15. I know that's weird. It's kind of backwards. But um, like I said, they don't all happen at one, at one time. So chapter 15 happens, and Abram cuts these, these animals. Now that you kind of know what's going on, and then a deep sleep falls on him, and he wakes up. I'm sure scared, and that's where we start in verse 17, when the sun had gone down, 
and it was dark. Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I gave this land. So what happens? He goes into a deep sleep, and he wakes up, and then uh, <laughs> he's about to walk through the blood because he's about to take his half of the covenant, saying, may I be like one of these dead animals if I don't keep my half fully knowing that I have every right to die and God has every right to kill me if I walk through this blood because I can't keep my half, which is to be blameless and never sin again. So as he's about to walk through this, and this is, you know, I'm sure he's terrified and trembling, and what he sees is God is, is represented as smoke and fire in the Old Testament. So a smoking fire pot goes through, and that's God's half. And then Abram's stepping up to the, to the blood, about to walk through and take his half, basically signing his own death sentence, and he walks up to the blood, and then it's like, you know, all of creation just stands still, I'm sure, and is watching this, like this about to unfold, and then it's like when he's about to go through the blood, it's like God puts his arm out in front of Abram and stops him, and then he goes through as, a fi as, as fire. So he takes both halves of the covenant. When Abram's about to go through and sign his own death sentence, Jesus goes through and he signs his own death sentence. And that was the moment that Jesus was sentenced to death, right there in Genesis 15. Abram's about to walk through, but what does God do? God, knowing full well Abram can't be blameless before him, he goes through and he takes the punishment for Abraham's disobedience. He knows that Abram can't keep it, so God goes through and takes the punishment for Abram's half. And then Jesus was sentenced to death. And we know that you know, about four, five, six thousand years later, there's a man hanging on the cross fulfilling his half of the covenant. So that, that is God's covenant with Abram. But then there's a lot more to that story because there's a, a big gap between Abram and Jesus. So now, so now he's Abraham. So what happens between Abraham and, and Jesus? So every day you've heard of these Old Testament sacrifices that you know, we're kind of confused on. Every day at, at the sixth hour and the ninth hour, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. in our time, there's a, a sacrifice instituted every day. Um, and they would blow a horn called a shofar. It's a ram's horn. It's, it's a horn. It's, it's really long and really, really loud. If you blew it in here as loud as you could, it would probably blow the windows out. It's ridiculous. But it was meant to be heard across the entire city. That was the point. That when the high priest went into the, the, uh, the Holy of Holies and sacrificed an animal, that everyone could hear when their sin had been atoned for. And sacrifice was disgusting. It was meant to be. God gave... Uh, the Israelites a picture of what it's like to be in disobedience to God. They go in and they take an animal and they cut it open and they take its entrails out and they wash the livers and the entrails and stuff and then they burn them and it smells awful and then they take all this blood and they throw it around the walls and they throw it on the, the altar and they sprinkle it everywhere and it's disgusting. You walk into you know, a, a BC temple and it smells like rotting flesh and, and burning intestines. It's not pleasant. But the thing is, that's in the presence of the Lord. It's supposed to be in the presence of the Lord. But God is so gracious as to give us a sign of what it's like to walk in disobedience away from Him. He says, this is what it's like. It smells like this. It looks like this. It feels like this. It feels disgusting. And that's why God gave, us those sac gave them those sacrifices. So every day, twice a day, the, the high priest would go into the temple and make that sacrifice. And they would blow a, a ram's horn, a shofar. The same shofar that that blew at Jericho, the same kind of trumpet that blew at Jericho when the walls fell and God kept his promise there. It's the same shofar that in Revelation is talking about the same thing when Jesus comes back to, to come and be with his people and get rid of sin, keeping his promise there. And it's the same horn right here when God uh, atones for the sins of the whole nation in keeping his promise there. 
It's the shofar horn. And then every day at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. across the city, the Jews would stop. And they knew that it wasn't, it wasn't the ram that covered their sin or the goat. It was God who had the mercy to forgive them and cover their sins and atone for them. God kept his promise. And then after Abram, you know, a few thousand years later, at 3 p.m., there's a man hanging on the cross in that same city. And it says at the, the ninth hour of the day, 3 p.m., it says Jesus cries out in a loud voice, It is finished. What is finished? The sacrifices? Yes. Like the old covenant? Yes. But what is finished? It says my promise is finished. I kept my promise. I kept my half of the covenant. That's what he's talking about. So what have we done? I mean, think about it right now. We've, we're, we're in the new covenant. So what is our signs of the new covenant? We have, you know, the giving up of your robe. We lay down our life. Well, Jesus doesn't just call us to, to follow him. He says, no, give up your life and follow me. He says, die to yourself and follow me. And we know that Jesus is with us all the time. The Spirit of God is with us. Um, and we exchange names. It's no longer Jew and Gentile. Now, God is the God of the Jew and Gentile. And you know, we're Christians, we're followers of Christ. That's what we're identified as. And our scar or our mark, we're not, we don't need just a scar or a mark anymore, but we die through baptism. It's that representation of dying. That's our scar, is that we are a new human now. We've been resurrected with Christ Jesus. That's our scar. And what does Jesus say we should be known for? Our love. That's our identifying mark, is our love for one another. It's how people know that we're in a covenant with something greater and higher than ourselves. And our law and sum summary documents, it's the Sermon on the Mount, it's all of Jesus' teachings, it's all of the epistles. But what is the summary document? It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. And where does God put it? He says he's going to write it on your heart. Where is the special place to God? It's you. It's on your heart. That's God's special place. He puts it on your heart because you're special to God, special enough to die for, and that's where he puts his summary documents. So you always remember to walk in step with him. And then we know what we just did was our memorial meal, the Lord's Supper. And that's where we, we have a meal because we're at peace with God. That's why Paul instructs us not to have that meal unless we are at peace with God and at peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, but what have we done? I think I look at my own heart, which is a gift that God gives us the spirit that we may look at our own heart and the state of our own soul. And I think along the way, I've turned it into a contract and not a covenant. I've turned into a list of rules and not a relationship. And I think we all do that from time to time. I think we do. You know, in our darkest moments when we're, we don't feel that, that connection with God, it's because we've turned it into a list of rules. We've turned it into, you know, do's and don'ts and thou shalt and thou shalt not and do this and you'll earn my favor. But that was never what it was intended to be. That's why God sent his son to die because he knew that Abram couldn't do enough to keep and earn his favor. So God sent his son to die. And we've turned it into a contract a lot of times. But, you know, now is the time to restore that relationship. And that's what it's supposed to be, is the whole time is a relationship. That's why God comes and he lives among us and he puts his law in our spirit, in our heart, and he walks in step with us. And we have a Lord's Supper meal together. It's because he wants to have a relationship with us, a covenant-style relationship with us. So as you go about your week, think of it as a relationship. I mean, husbands and wives, what do you do when you're in the car? You, you talk to one another. Which, I mean, you're in a much more, should be in a much more deeply intimate relationship with your creator, with the God who died for you. Why not talk to him in the car? Why not turn off the music 
and talk to him because I often fail to do that. Why is he not the first thing you think about in the mornings if he's not? And why, before you go to bed, don't you tell him goodnight and say, thank you for being such a great relationship partner. Thank you, God. Think of it as a relationship as you walk through your day and, and stop trying to earn his favor if you are, you know, in the deepest, darkest parts of your life when I'm trying to jump through hoops to earn God's favor when I know I can't. Remember that Jesus died because he knew you couldn't. It's not a secret from God. He knew you couldn't, you couldn't earn his favor or keep your half of the covenant. So think of it as a relationship as you go through your, your day and your weeks because he's God and he loves you. Let's pray. Uh, my Lord, my God, thank you for allowing us to be here this morning and worship so freely, God. Thank you for, for bringing us here. Thank you for keeping your half of the covenant when we could not, God. Thank you for knowing that we can't keep our half of the covenant. Thank you for giving us these beautiful symbols in the Bible that, that our special place and your special place are the same place, and it's with your people, that you love us enough to come and be intimate with us and interact with us and be personal with us and not keeping yourself distant and away from us. We thank you, God, for all that you've given us, and thank you most of all for, for coming to die for us, God. We love you, Lord. Your sons and me pray. Amen.